0: Well, hello everyone, uh, uh, welcome to the Park Hill Church Podcast. Evan here, I'm one of the pastors at Park Hill, and this is an interview series that's going to enrich our current series on, on, on the Bible. The series is called God Breathed, how to, how to relearn to read and trust this library of documents called the Scriptures. And so, so this is an interview. This is one of many interviews, and this is the first one I'm recording uh, with a dear friend of mine who has, who has been to Park Hill and preached there, and his fingerprints are kind of all over the way we articulate a lot of stuff around the church. And would you please give a warm welcome to the one and only uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. What's up, Preston?
1: What's up, man? Good to see you, man. You sound just like Tim Mackey, by the way. Oh man, <laughs> your yeah, cadence and the phrases. There's you're another using, guy. The library of scriptures, or whatever. <laughs> there's another
0: guy who has his fingerprints all over my brain. Him and I, you know, living in Portland. That's under, a good one to the, sound like. Uh, under the shadow of the Bible Project, we'll get you yeah. talking like Tim Mackey, but. Um, <laughs> So the purpose of these interviews is to go deeper. On Sundays, we're talking about why the Bible is trustworthy Mm -hmm. and why Jesus, so Jesus followed. I mean, we're we're really jumping off of Andrew Wilson's classic line, which is um, we don't trust Jesus because we trust the Bible. We trust the Bible because we trust in this person, Mm. Jesus. And if Jesus loved it, honored it, submitted to it, Mm-hmm. treated it as true and good and trustworthy and authoritative from the Father, then we do too because we trust Jesus. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what Jesus followers do. So we follow him in his trust of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's big meta Sunday morning stuff, but we've promised our church that we'll get kind of into the weeds mm-hmm. uh, and have the conversations that will get us in trouble, which are fun. Because um, <laughs> so, we, we value that at Park Hill. We value, you know, one of the phrases we... We lead with, for our new members' classes, um, no question, off-limits, honest doubt, welcome. um, Because we want to be like, you know, Peter, he he heard a hard teaching from Jesus about like eating Jesus' flesh, drinking his blood, and then Jesus started losing disciples (laughs) over that, (laughs) and and Jesus turns around and goes, Peter, are you going to leave me too? And his response is what we want to be, and he's like, where else is there? Like, where else am I going to go? Only you have the words of life and Mm. so we come to the the words of life when we come to the scriptures um but we we bring our baggage and we bring our Mm -hmm. trauma and our church hurt from before and we and lots of questions that we hear that we think are new questions when they're really not so i'm going to ask come right out of the gate President, and just ask you to introduce yourself maybe tell the nutshell elevator pitch version of your story in coming to trust and know the bible and you know it uniquely you're like You've immersed your life in the actual languages of the Bible and all of that. So, can you yeah. kind of let us? You're talking yeah. to people who don't know
1: even who you are. Yeah. So, well, they they who know my you? name because they have the title of the podcast. But um, uh, yeah, I'm I, uh, 47 years old, married, got four kids, teenagers, mostly teenagers. Um, came to Christ. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, but you really had a, that kind of like solid conversion. Uh, experience uh, around the age of 19 and immediately fell in love with studying the Bible, which I hated to read books, hated to study before that. It really was, I don't want to say miracle. I mean, parting red seas are miracles, but it was, it was a clear work of God that created this almost uncontrollable desire to want to do what I've never cared about doing before, and that's the Get an old book and read it like crazy. And the, I was 19, and I'm 47 now, and and things haven't changed a lot. Like I just I love 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 studying um, the Bible and and wrestling with hard questions and and trying to apply them in a way that's that's you know resonates with the rhythm of Scripture. You know, um, so that you know I, I pursued lots of education, got a, a bachelor's degree in Bible, a, a master's degree in Bible, a PhD in, in Bible. Um, I think. That took me to my late twenties, uh, and then I got a job at a school teaching the Bible full time. So, um, did that for almost ten years, and then now I, you know, run um, a podcast, some, some an organization, uh, do conferences, speaking, writing, and so on. So I'm still my, you know, whether it's been studying the Bible uh, educationally, teaching it, or or writing about it, like my whole life, my whole Christian life, and most of my actual life um, has been consumed with uh, wrestling with with the Bible. I love it. I've, I've, uh, I've had my dream job, really. So,
0: And you're being... So, listeners, you're, he's, uh, Preston's being humble. His, his <laughs> podcast is called Theology in the Raw. It helps communities worldwide. The listenership just keeps growing somewhat exponentially. A lot of people listen to Theology in the Raw. And his organization is... You can look it up online, centerforfaith.com. I don't know how you got that domain. The, I the know, cen- right? <laughs> the Center for Faith. The Preston, Center you, for you own All
1: it. Faith, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, but it, specifically, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and that's been primarily your work, mm-hmm. your realm yep. of expertise, is helping churches think through the intersection of faith, sexuality, and gender. You're actually going to be in San Diego this week. I don't know when this will yeah. be released, but you yeah. be helping the San Diego churches just yeah. how, to, yeah. how to talk well about Sexuality, marriage, singleness, or LGBTQ, brothers and sisters in Christ, and all of that. So, um, yeah. Any last introductory thoughts before I spring, yeah, spring, spring on you go. some tough questions? All right, here we go. Okay. So, you're talking right now to mostly people who really want to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a church podcast, and next year is 2024, which is election year, and the church... Some churches navigate election year well, and and others not so much. I would love, you know, I think it's going to be a beast yep. in our wildly partisan moment. Uh, speak to a group of people who love Jesus right now. Um, <laughs> how how can we be disciples in such a wildly partisan moment?
1: I uh, I mean, this is literally a would take a whole book. Oh, it is a book. I've got a book on this very topic coming out next spring. Um, so you, you threw up a good advertisement, I would say, buy my book. It's called Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. I, I'm i very concerned and excited and passionate about your question. Um, I, I believe that Christians of all ages should work harder than we have in the past to disconnect our identity from national modern politics. An identity of the cross is at fundamental odds with the I- an identity of empire, which is what an American identity is. And let, let me just, I, 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 will, I will be very short and concise here, and, and if you have, you know, we can go do some back and forth. And, and let me just say up front that I love so many things about uh, the nation that we now call the United States of America. I love the cross-cultural nature of it. I love the mountains. I love the scenery. Um, there's things about American history that are, I mean, blatantly evil and other things that are good and lots of things in between. So uh, I have a complex relationship with the country that through no choice of my own, I happen to be born in. And I would expect the same from my Nigerian and South Korean and um, Zimbabwean brothers and sisters in Christ. And my allegiance to my South Sudan brothers and sisters is much stronger than, than my allegiance to my next door neighbor who might vote for the same Babylonian candidate that I do. I I do use the category of exile in Babylon to describe my relationship with the country that I was born in and and that I have citizenship in um, because I think the Bible does. I I think the Bible uses the category of Babylon to refer to the literal nation of Babylon that exiled the Jewish people, but also as a broad kind of general category of any kind of world-dominating power. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think, and, and this is something that you know, I, I really tried to make sure I, I, I'm not reading into the Bible more than what's there, but I think that the category of Babylon, which is applied to, you know, the Roman Empire in the first century and in any kind of like Roman-like, Babylon-like, uh, empire-like uh, nation state, um, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And one thing it says very clearly is that the people of God should not find their identity um, in Babylon um, mm-hmm. we should be good citizens we, we should seek the good of Babylon but you know be good citizens uh, we should uh, pray for Babylon's leaders um, we should um, protest Babylon when it does things that are fundamentally at odds with uh, the way creation should be run um, so we live in this tension of, of being good citizens but also being faithful resistors um, and that's because our, our identity is not in Babylon. Uh, and also, one more thing, and this is maybe a more of a practical exercise, like, how often do we use the plural pronoun, we, us, to refer to our American identity versus our kingdom of God identity? Mm, mm,
0: like, are we going to go over and help in the Israel-Gaza? Yeah. Like, are we going to go over and help yeah.
1: Russia-Ukraine? And when meet? we say that, we often mean we, America. The New Testament would never <laughs> do that. The only time we could, the closest we come is like Paul... You know, he sometimes uses the plural pronoun to refer to as Jewish ethnic identity. And and even there it's kinda of, I think that's that's kind of a different thing. But Paul never, even as a Roman citizen, would never have says he never used would have used a phrase like our troops to refer to the Roman military. He never would have said our borders <laughs> refer to how far Rome pushed their borders into the barbarian territories in the north or, you know, in the African territories and the like that. That just it would it would be it would be like I think if you took a first century Christian and plopped them down today in America, they would be so bewildered at some of the, I would say, syncretistic forms in which our Americanism has diluted and been just integrated into our Christian faith. Hmm. Uh, Again, Hmm. good citizen, submit to government authorities, pray for your leaders, don't revolt, which raises questions about 1976. or 17, 1776. 17, 1776, Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was born in nineteen seventy. I was like, oh, um, you mean a Peter Gabriel's first record? <laughs> Just kidding. So I, I so I, 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 I'm more concerned. Not you know, who do you vote for? What about this? What about that? I think Satan is doubled over laughing. Right. When the bride of Jesus Christ, who was crucified by the empire for treason, um, I think Satan is doubled over laughing. When the kingdom of God that exists in the place we now call the United States of America is divided over Babylonian politics, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. families are torn apart, churches are torn apart, the kingdom of God is stunted like a major roadblock because of Babylon disputes over whether... You know, to put it in historical terms, whether Nero is better than Caligula and who should we, you know, you saw that, so you know, you you guys sided with Caligula and we side with Nero and how dare you and we're not going to talk. Yeah. I think Satan okay. is like, this is, this is, you got to make this so stuff up. This is so easy. So that, that's, <laughs> I, didn't, that's, I didn't have that's to do it theologically to... or anything. I just have to like drop them into like the American political scene and, and it just like is destroying the church.
0: Yeah. So on that, so Nero Caligula. So you mentioned uh, we need to find a prophetic protest. Like, what does it look like to protest yep. Nero? Let's say, I have a question for you on this. I did not send this one ahead of time. Okay, that's fine. How should a citizen of heaven mm-hmm. who prefers Caligula over Nero mm-hmm. celebrate Caligula's win? Like, how do we celebrate <laughs> the win? If, if we were, like, passionate, like, let's say we're secondarily passionate about mm-hmm. our candidate, what's a kingdom way to celebrate that win?
1: I don't even know... That's a good question. And, and, and by the, I'm going to be the first one. I hope I don't come off as overly confident. I think there's lots of, what about this? What about that? Practical ramifications of kind of what I'm getting at that I don't have, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I, I want our starting point to be, where is our fundamental political identity? It's in the global multi-ethnic kingdom of God, not in the Babylonian partisan camps or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think... I don't know if I would even say celebrate that that to me, that almost feels a little too strong. Um, I think there can be a place. I have a whole nother spiel on this, but let's just say for instance, that, you know, maybe one of Babylon's candidates is overall going to be a better person to rule the empire. Um, Even then, I think we're so blinded by what does that mean? Does that mean bringing in more economic wealth into the empire, where does that come from? What other countries are negatively affected by the empire becoming more wealthy? Like as a global Christian, I'm more concerned. I'm not, I don't, I don't think Paul celebrated Rome becoming more wealthy. (laughs) We got more wealth. We got more, we got big, you know? So even there, I think some of our values of what is good, what is bad, what's worth celebrating can sometimes even be so skewed by our American americanism or or nationalism than again to apply it to other christians around the world than our our kingdom of god identity okay having that's that's so let's just say at the end of the day one candidate might be better than another i, th- I think hey I, I, okay i think this candidate might do a better job you know running uh the empire uh, but it's still a it's still a Babylonian leader running Babylon, you know? Um, I mean, just, I, I always just bring it up, but just pick yourself as Jewish exile. You, you've been taken over to Babylon. You're living there, you're Jewish exiles. And say Nabonidus, you know, is now the ruler and not Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's fine for the exile to say, you know what, that Nebuchadnezzar, man, that dude is a piece of work. And I, I think Neb- I think Nabonidus is, is probably going to do a better job at ruling over Babylon. But it's still, it's just, it's just such a... There's still such a distance between you and that because you're you're not even, your identity is in, you're in exile. Like you have your kingdom yeah. of God stuff you need to do. And the best way you can seek the good of the city is not by becoming Babylonian, but by maintaining your Jewish exilic identity, which is what we see throughout the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel talks about this extensively, you know. Um, so what I'm hearing is,
0: I, I like how you push back on the question to celebrate. Don't celebrate. Maybe what I'm hearing you say is still honor your primary identity as a kingdom citizen, even if your partisan preferred candidate wins, be ready to push maybe back, push back on something that your winner stands for. Like find something that still doesn't line up with the kingdom. Like if you're a Trump guy, but you're a Jesus guy first, find find a concrete thing that you still will work against that Trump stands for in the name of Jesus.
1: I, yes, and absolutely. and the
0: same and the same the other way, like st- like, because mm-hmm. you have to identify as Christ in some
1: measurable way, a Christian. Yeah, this is where I, I'm. I think I'm okay with people voting for a certain candidate or not. I know it might sound like, well, of course we should vote. You know, I actually toyed with like the morality of voting as a whole. So I'm actually come a long way. Like, oh, okay, I'm not going to get on. You know, vote this direction, whatever. But I'm still pretty adamant against like partisan allegiance,
0: mm.
1: where you're devoted to. Whether you say it or not, um, you're so invested and devoted to one political party being clearly, you know, where your allegiance lies and what they say, you'll say, what they believe, you'll believe, what they tell you to, you know. So when anybody kind of goes down and you ask them their view on immigration and abortion and LGBTQ stuff and trans rights, and, and if they just go down the check box and check it off every single box on one party and what they believe, I'm like come on, man, like uh, foreign policy and immigration and climate change, these are very unrelated issues. Like you just happen to light up on, or are you absorbing propaganda, narrative-driven information that's designed to bend your heart and mind toward giving your allegiance to a Babylonian tribe? I just think we need to be much more vigilant and wise in how um, powerful um, political propaganda can be and how it can actually sometimes slowly, sometimes subtly wean our allegiance off of Jesus. And you say, no, it's not doing that. I'm like, okay, well, um, if you have a Christian that votes differently than you, is that going to interrupt your brotherly love toward that person or sisterly love? You know, like if if it is, if you just look at them, like, how could you, then, then yeah, your allegiance to a party might be without you admitting it, interrupting your actual discipleship, which calls you to love both enemy and neighbor alike. Oof.
0: So, Sounded, I, you answered the question at the end. My last question on politics, I promise this isn't a politics <laughs> interview. Uh, it's a Bible interview. So how would you root that whole position you just articulated in Bible? Like, where would you take someone yeah. for a flyover biblical theology of your, what yeah. you just talked about, like your approach to politics, <laughs> earthly politics?
1: I mean, that, that I, I hate mentioning it again, but that is literally what my book is about. It's a biblical theology of a political, of the people of God's political identity. And I began in. I, I think even in the Old Testament, when Israel was an actual nation nation, nation state, it was still still extremely countercultural. Its view of kingship, its view of military, its view of economics, its view of the of the marginalized, its view of the immigrant it, it just had such a countercultural. It was a nation very much unlike the nations, you know. So even when it wasn't, even even when the people of God were quote unquote say nationalistic or you know, it was just. Weaning people away from nationalism, even when it was a nation. Then you get into the New Testament, and well, you you know, through the lens of exile, obviously people who got in exile. They lose their kind of political identity, and they never really regain it, even though, even though they return to the land. Uh, you see this throughout Second Temple Jewish literature, intertestamental Jewish literature, um, that this theme of still being in exile, even while living back in the land, was very present. Um, you got hmm. Gentile overlords. You're paying taxes to Gentiles. You, you're, you're not. There's no King David. There's no son of David on the throne. Like, they're still politically distant from, you know, the the overlords. You know, over them. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Obviously, well, I, you know, First Peter uses this language explicitly of being strangers and exiles. But you see this theme of 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 having this kind of exilic political identity, kind of kind of underlying. I would say so much of New Testament thought. And it just bursts on the scenes in the book of Revelation. I know there's debates about how to interpret it, but any responsible interpreter is going to say at the very least that there's a lot of politics in the book of Revelation, you know? Um, And, and there you see a strong dichotomy between the kingdom of God and to use Revelation's own words, the demonically empowered empire of Rome in, in Revelation 12 and 13. And so, um, yeah, I just think that there is a thick air woven all throughout the New Testament of, a, of believers having a political identity that is clearly um, and radically distinct from, at that time, a Roman imperial identity.
0: Amazing. Get the book, guys. <laughs> so, uh, here's the next question. So I'm thinking of the person who is wrestling with their faith, uh, and and maybe they see this incredible TikTok video, and they're feeling like I just found the question to undo all Christianity, and it was on TikTok, and I have trouble <laughs> with this question. The Bible's evil because of all this, yeah. all this stuff I'm learning online. Uh, so I, I actually don't want to rail against that person. I feel like,
1: mm, it's feel a pastoral, like yeah.
0: I'm like, that's like, I, I love what Dan Kimball says, who's going to be on this interview series too. Like, I would have the same problem with the Bible if I didn't know what the Bible was doing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, I have the yeah. same problem. Yes. Tons. Let's like, let's, let's give space for that. So in that spirit, I would like to ask you personally, like yeah. what part of the Bible is Preston still losing sleep over? Yeah. And uh, what's a faithful way to read the text when it's hard for you? And you're like, I don't even know anymore. I don't even know where to, which way is up or down on this text.
1: Yeah, which uh, the, part? So that's, that's yeah. a two-part question. Which
0: yeah. which which part of the Bible is hard, and then two, what do you do about it?
1: Uh, there's there's several that are hard. Um, I, I think the one that's hardest for me because it raises lots of moral questions is the conquest of Canaan. I don't love referring it to the genocide of the Canaanites. I think the modern concept of genocide and what's going on in the Book of Joshua. Um, isn't the same, but it's still, I think if we take the Bible at its word, again, there's really smart people like Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn who are going to disagree with me on this, but I, I, I do think that God commanded the Israelites to go in and slaughter a whole bunch of people and take over the land. And I can give the textbook theological reason. Well, God was going to, his presence was going to dwell there and it was filled with all oh, its unholiness and really bad people, really bad people. And all, I'm like, I, I mean, you still going to go into slaughtering men, women, and children and call that like okay. You know, like we, we just don't think that way and we shouldn't. So yeah, that, that one is still, I, 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 at the end of the day, I'm like, man, I, I, I think they're, if I were God, that's always a problematic statement, right? <laughs> And that's what we really mean when yeah. we say there's a problem in the Bible. It's like, well, if I was God, I would not do it that way. So there is a bit of, there is a bit of. We just have to admit there is a bit of um, whether you call it uh, arrogance or overconfidence uh, mm-hmm. for, for us to even say like, yeah, this this was this was clearly evil, and I would not do it this way. So, but but I do have that. I'm just being honest. Like I, I read the Book of Joshua through all these different angles, and I'm like, I, there's just. I wish I can just say, oh, this didn't really happen or God really didn't command him. I just, I don't think that's the best reading of scripture. Um, so I'm willing to live with the hard truth that for whatever reason, um, and, and God's given us, you know, reasons, whether we like it or those reasons or not in scripture, but God did do this. I think th- it's, I think it's a singular event. I don't think it's designed to be replicated. I think if we replicated that today, God would rebuke us for it. Um, uh, but it's still, that's hard. That's, that's, yeah, that's, That's really hard. Um, But then again, the flood's hard. I mean, the flood, you know, is like a genocide against the entire human race. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think so, some of those, and, and also to throw in one more, you know, there's are, there's individual incidents where people die for committing sins that other people don't die for. My my daughters bring this up to me all the time. Why did Ananias and Sapphira have to get struck down by God? Well, they lied. You know, like she's like, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I lied yesterday and the day before, Dad. Have you ever lied? Yeah. And how come God didn't strike you down? <laughs> well, it's an example within. The, here's me, the scholar. Well, within the narrative flow, God needed to make an example out of people to you know to to, to warn people this new shift in redemptive history, and we need to make sure you know, still, come on, man. Well, How come they had to be an example of God's narrative flow or whatever, you know? So those are hard. Those are really hard for me. Um, Yeah. Um, What do I do with that? Yeah. What do you do with that? I, here's...
0: I mean, you kind of already said what you do. You're kind of like God is God.
1: That's part of it. Well, it's part of it. But I also go even deeper than that. I go back to whenever I wrestle with the reliability or morality of the Bible... I always ask the question, okay, what are my options here? My options are atheism, I'll throw agnosticism, not believing in God, or some kind of theism. Okay, of those options, I I've done enough like intellectual work to know I, you know, I know it's such a cliche, it's such a cliche. I hate hate even saying it, but that takes a lot of faith to be in. To say there is no designer behind everything here, like to me, that is that is a that's 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 a tough sell for me. So I'm gonna go with I I, I think I'm a higher being, higher power, some kind of divine being. I'm gonna say I think that's makes the most sense of what I see in the world. And then it's like okay, what are my options there? Ba- and based on what? Well, you're really basing it on tradition, myth, scriptures, um, you know, written testimony. And there, of all the options, if I read the Book of Mormon, if I read the Quran, which I haven't done extensively, but enough to, you know, get a feel. When I read the, you know, uh, Hindu writings, when I read, uh, look at other religions, um, and then I look at the Bible, it, it really, of all the options, what the, the story that the Bible tells makes the most sense of how I see the world, not perfect sense, but the most sense, like humans do bad stuff. We're born and and we do. We're, we have a sinful nature, and I can explain serial killers. I can explain adultery. I can explain human trafficking. Like I, I, I that doesn't conflict with the biblical worldview in in sense of how evil people are. Um, creation has been affected by sin. I can explain hurricanes and whatever you know. I can explain um, the fact that we need an outside power to redeem us. Like, like trying to do this on our own without God intervening through radical grace. Like to me, that's not just true. It's also very beautiful. You know, the story of creation fall redemption through the cross of Jesus that that's a beautiful story and even like the problem of evil if god is good why does he do bad things why does all the suffering happens like the bible has this one really unique contribution to that really difficult question is god came down through his own free will to endure suffering and exhaust it on the cross like that that's a that's profound um the Bible also, you know, I've I've studied in Israel and and walked around biblical sites and and for the most part it's remarkable how archaeology today does c- correlate with the, how the Bible tells the story, you know? And so there's historical verification. Again, I'm I'm the I I don't mind unsolved tensions. There, there's still stuff today, you know, the, the genealogy between Matthew 1 and Luke 3 seems to conflict and I don't know how to resolve it. I'm fine with that because I have 10 other examples of things that I can resolve. It's like, well, for the most part, the Bible's got a really good historical, um, philosophical, and, and moral track record, again, compared to the other options. Right, I don't right. need to solve it all. I don't need perfection. All I need is, of all the options, the God who has revealed himself through the Hebrew and Greek scriptures makes the most sense to me. So, That's good. So it's yeah. like
0: a zoom out take in the bigger picture and don't get so myopically like oh my gosh this story sucks (laughs) right but like that's really helpful um so just next question how how have you read the creation story (laughs) so and i should say stories because there's two complementary stories in genesis 1 and 2 Mm -hmm. as we've talked about on sunday at park hill actually this sunday uh, this coming Sunday, October twenty second, I think it's going to be. Uh, we have one of our elders who's a scientist. He's mm. the dean of chemistry at oh, Point yeah. Loma Nazarene University. He's yeah, going no, to no, no. he's going to preach on Bible and science. And oh yeah, he's also an electric guitarist for your Exiles conference. Awesome. But um, but he's going to do a thing on Bible and science mm. where he's going to hit on you know Genesis one and then Psalm eight and then land on the rest mm. that Jesus gives. Um, I just tipped my cards. I tipped his cards. But <laughs> from your perspective, he's not a biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, so from your perspective, I, I kind of want to phrase the question this way. Yeah. What do Genesis 1 and 2 require us to believe about mm-hmm. like a historical yeah. creation account? Because yeah. um, that's really where the divide comes in is you have young earth creationists, yeah. staunch young earth creationists on the side that say the Bible requires us to believe in this young earth. Where everything just kind of popped into existence 6,000 years ago, and uh, the, and if you think the world looks old, it's just because God made it look old. Yeah. because you have to believe yeah. that it's young. And then you have dinosaur, like he buried dinosaur bones to trick us. He, he buried dinosaur bones to trick us to, <laughs> to, to make to be, to be Jehovah sneaky or whatever. and, 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 and then you have I'm sorry: No yeah well, well I've yeah they don't no one agrees. No one who's a young earth creationist believe God intentionally tricked any of us. So that, yes, yeah. that, thank you for owning that. that I agree with that. I, I participated in that cheap shot with you. <laughs> but there's also cheap shots on the other side. Like, if you don't believe in evolution, you know. It's so so yeah. how, well, I guess getting to the core of it from a biblical scholarship standpoint, what, do you, what would you say mm-hmm. Genesis wanted to require mm-hmm. us to believe? Um, and then we're free from there to do science.
1: Uh, let me first of all say this is not my area of expertise. I've I've read a bit and dabbled uh, enough to have an educated opinion. Um, and you know, I guess people say, "Well, you're a biblical scholar. You should." Know. I'm like, "Okay, I, I I do have a good, decent handle on how the Bible as a whole works." But in terms of like, you know, Genesis one to two, Genesis one to eleven, these are there's a lot of uniquely Complicated questions there that um, I would need to do a lot of more serious work, both in the Bible and science, to really have a stronger opinion. And I, I'm a big fan of the strength of my opinion on anything should match the depth of my study. Um, so, um, so here, so take that for what it's worth. Okay, my here's my thought. Um, I don't think that the creation stories are really designed or intended to answer a lot of our Questions, um, especially about the age of the earth. I don't think the author um, was writing in a way where he was trying to answer those questions. And so, I first of all want to author, honor authorial intention. What's the author trying to? What's he trying to communicate here? And I do think uh, this is something I used to emphasize in my Old Testament survey classes back when I used to teach uh, Old Testament survey is the primary question we should always be asking, especially when it comes to like Old Testament narratives, is what does this, what's this story trying to teach us about God? It's very very God, narratives are very God-centered. Genesis 1 and 2 is very God-centered. So the main thing we should walk away with is, you know, God is, I do think monotheism is probably the main point in Genesis 1 and 2. If you read the creation stories of Genesis in light of other creation stories that the audience, the original audience would have been swimming in, the author is trying to wrench the Israelites away from this kind of polytheistic view of creation, which was very pervasive at that day, especially to a bunch of Israelites coming out of Egypt where they're just surrounded for hundreds of years with all these deities and creation myths and so on. And so I think he's trying to reveal to us that there is one God who with ease speaks creation into existence. Genesis 1 is, is showing that this one God is incredibly powerful. He's not having to defeat other gods to be ruler over creation. He simply speaks creation into existence. So, this, so monotheism, there's one God. This one God is very powerful. He's, so, he's a sovereign king over all creation, not just a certain plot of land. But what's so striking, what's so beautiful and magnificent is in Genesis 2, this same God, steps down to, you know, where he's like playing in the dirt <laughs> forming mankind with his hands, you know, and there's metaphors going on, you know, and he and he breathes life into his nostrils and lots of beautiful images going on communicating that this sovereign king over all creation is also very intimate and wants to be near to these people called, you know, uh, male and female. Um, so for me, that, the, to me, we need to marinate in, in some of these broader, bigger themes. And then I don't, I don't think it's wrong to ask modern questions. I just—I think it's wrong to demand that an ancient text that is not asking the same questions we are to give the, a precise answer to our questions. So I my, real quick, I, I think regarding age of the earth – uh, whether, you know, we could even move, you know, historical Adam and Eve, are they a symbol for a kind of archety- archetype human person? Are they literal Adam and Eve? Are they the progenitor, progenitors of the whole human race? Or are they picked out of a lot of other humanoids? I mean, there's lots of different theories on these things. If somebody's not familiar with this, they might be tripping out right now. But there, there's evangelical, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing scholars who have some different views on what is historical and what is not in Genesis, let's just say one to three or even one to 11. I think, well, again, I don't know enough about the science to really know what we should or have to believe on that. I will say the biblical narrative, the biblical genre gives us open, like allows for various interpretive conclusions. Old earth, young earth. I don't think, Genesis 1 and 2 itself says one or the other now if, if the science can be shown to say the earth is old, and we know that to be true, I think that reading is perfectly compatible with what the Bible says. if it's young, I think that you know would be compatible i think i think i mean I think the science would point toward it being old <laughs> um. So that's where I land, you know, but I, if, if, if it turns out I studied science and I realize no, the earth is actually, you know, 6,000 years old, okay. I think the, the the Bible itself doesn't come down hard on one or the other.
0: Yeah, on that. So in a in a recent podcast we put up on the Park Hill feed, it's a Q&A panel from the Roseburg Bible Conference with Scott McKnight and myself and mm-hmm. Lakita Wright, and then AJ Sobota asked us a bunch of questions. So he's yeah. moderating. and And this question came up. And... And the answer I gave was, Genesis 1 and 2 aren't as interested in how and when, yeah. but they're all obsessed with who and why. Yes, exactly. And and, and I, I gave a short kind of what I thought was sweet answer. And then Scott McKnight grabbed the mic and he said, I love Evan's question, but the problem, so I love Evan's answer, But the problem with Evan's answer is there's a lot of people who don't love Evan's answer. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole like young earth is the Bible doesn't care thing. Like the Bible, the Bible lets you land wherever gives a, you know, it gives a lot of people freedom to go against 99.9% of scientific consensus in the name of Christianity, yeah, which ends up being a bad witness to Christianity. And that's Scott McKnight's problem. Yeah, uh, I don't know how you'd respond to that.
1: I think, it. yes, I, I agree. I, I, I was raised staunchly young earth, and it was equated with biblical authority. If you believe the Bible and love Jesus, you will be young. You believe in young earth. Um, I think that that, I don't, so I don't hold to young earth, but again, I'm, I'm not going to stand on stage and debate somebody who opposed I, I i'm not an expert in it but from what i've seen i think old earth makes the most sense both of the uh, the text and from what i think we know about science um if somebody says no i i hold to old young earth sorry hope i didn't confuse those old earth me if somebody else holds to young earth i'm like okay that's the, i'm i'm fine with that i don't get worked up Where where i would get a little more passionate is when they sort of require that for everyone else that you're not a real christian or you don't really believe in the bible unless you believe this N- not because i think that's that's wrong which i do believe that's just wrong but it actually is pushing people away from jesus because and i've i've had as you have you know i, I don't know how many conversations with science very science minded christ people who are already very scientifically minded and then they're exploring Christianity. If they're told that to believe in Jesus, they must believe in an old young in a young earth. That is a major roadblock from them following Jesus. So you are literally putting stumbling blocks that I think are unbiblical in front of people, um, it's preventing them from from humanly speaking from from embracing jesus i had a good, good friend of mine he was he was on the board of the bible college i used to teach at, and that that was that was his story. he he was a a scientist he worked for the government some high up thing that he can't even talk about you know and 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 he was like when i when i was first told that i could believe in a young earth and also be a christian that's when i became a christian I, you know that was such a hang up for me i was like look this jesus thing makes sense I want to be saved, but I can't throw my brain out the door. This is how he's thinking: like I can't just like put my head. I'm not going to do that. So when he was told, no, old Earth is a legitimate reading of text, and he's like, "All right, I'm in." And I think that's a story of 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 a lot of people.
0: Oh man, so good. Uh, We're coming to the end here. Uh, I know your time is limited and very valuable, so thank you so much. I. I want to ask you another personal question. Yeah. Uh, as, as a professional Bible guy, which you are, I'm not, I'm a pastor, uh, which I want to keep growing. I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to study and get better, get better at talking about the Bible, but as, with you, uh, what's one part of the Bible you've changed on as far as like, the doctrine attached to that text? Uh, you've shifted your huh. interpret. you've shifted your understanding in a significant way in the last like 10 or 15
1: years. <laughs> okay, I was gonna ask you, like, what's the time frame? Because hopefully it's almost all of them. You know? <laughs> like, I don't... And that scares people, but it's like, okay, what are the options? Um, that at 19, as a new convert, I kind of knew everything, or whatever I thought I knew would change for the good over the time. So I, sometimes we equate change with like departing from. Whatever I see, I see changes departing from ignorance because, by definition, at nineteen, not having read the Bible, I was ignorant. Um, I, okay, 10, ten or fifteen years—that one's easy. I mean, I think my view of hell, moving from eternal conscious torment view of hell to annihilation, um, was was one. Um, and again, that was through a fairly thorough study of of the text of Scripture that's relevant to passages that speak about the final state of those who— Can you
0: unpack, like, just, like, short elevator definition of both those things? Sure. So
1: there's there's actually a few different understandings of the nature of hell within Christianity, broadly speaking. Um, Two uh, different understandings are, number one, eternal conscious torment that people that go to hell will suffer eternally, forever, consciously. They'll feel the pain— um, and it's ir- irreversible, and it's torment, you know. Um, most people, when they think of hell, that's what they think of, but, and that's that's been a dominant view for 1,500 years, um, but certainly not the only uh, Christian view. So that's the view I grew up with. That's the view I held for a number of years, largely out of just assumptions. I didn't study it necessarily, and then when I did study it, I realized, oh, it's more complicated than this, and then when I further studied, I personally... Came to the conclusion that i think the annihilation view is is more pervasive yeah wh- Meaning, what's that view yeah when people do um when jesus comes back all the dead will be raised they face judgment and those who reject jesus or did reject jesus and continue to reject jesus will be cast into what's called the lake of fire sometimes called Gehen- gehenna translated hell um and they will uh, be annihilated they'll, they'll be destroyed they'll cease to exist they'll their life will be over um and so they won't live for ongoing eternal life in, in, in misery, um, and again, I, I yeah, this would be another podcast which, which I've done people can go to my theology and raw podcast I've, I've talked about it extensively um, why I believe this, but yeah I, I, I think the biblical text leans very heavily in that in that direction um, no, is there
0: no, one no. other one other area you've changed
1: um, the- I mean there's there's quite a few i I most of the changes happened not because I studied something so thoroughly, came to a conclusion, restudied it, and changed my view. Most of the changes happened when I simply was in a tradition and absorbed a certain view. And then when I did actually study it on my own, then then I changed my view. But it wasn't from a studied view to a freshly studied view. it's from an absorbed, pre- presupposed view. That's interesting. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I would say, like... um the sign gifts were one. I was early on, like you know, I grew up in a anti-charismatic environment where you know speaking in tongues, prophecy, miracles aren't for today. Um, and I, I've once I actually studied that. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't. I'm very concerned about abuses along those lines in the church, like anybody else. But I mean, I, I just from the text of Scripture, I don't see the passages used to support what's called cessationism that those gifts have ceased. I don't see the, how those passages can really support that view. So, um, I'm currently wrestling with women in, in, in church leadership, as you know, and maybe some people listening know. Um, so I don't know where I'm at on that yet. I, I will probably land in the next two or three years. Um, I really want to turn over every single stone in that conversation. Um, uh nonviolence was one that uh, yeah I, I I think Christians should be nonviolent, and I grew up thinking the opposite, like to be a real Christian is to beat people up and stuff and and i don't i don't I think there's more power in getting beat up like Jesus did than, than beating people up wow. uh, but that, that's I love another, that's, what you, I love what you another. said about
0: about it it's your changes weren't from doing a lot of faithful, thorough biblical study, having a view, and then doing more faithful, thorough yeah. biblical study. And then having a totally different view, it's more—you inherited a kind of discombobulated tradition yeah. of, of uh, maybe bad teaching slash tradition—and mm-hmm. then you undid that through good teaching.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's a good way of putting it. I appreciate that. I, to keep it neutral, I would just say you know I I, had, I inherited viewpoints that were based on other people's study of scripture who arrived at a certain interpretation, and when they pointed me to the passages, I'd read the passages and say, oh okay. Okay, that makes sense. But then, when I start asking a question like, I'm meeting all these smart people who don't agree with you that also love the Bible. Then when I actually dug into it, reading books and articles on each side over and over and over, I'm like, oh, actually, the arguments against the viewpoint that I was told to me outweigh the arguments that I was told. You know, a, a, a dispensationalism. You know, pre-trib rapture is another one where I grew up with that view that there'll be a pre-tribulational rapture and and a seven-year tribulation tribulation after that then the second coming of Jesus and you know 1st uh, Thessalonians 4 13 to eighteen or 13 to 17 was part of that and then some passages in Revelation and Matthew 24 and and I read the passages I'm like oh okay that makes sense but when I did a more thorough study and looked at people who interpreted those passages differently I was like no I think these other interpretations are actually superior better representing the text oh. Two more. Here's here's a personal. Less,
0: less. Well, I guess they're both personal. How do you, how does God meet you in the text? Like, what does that look like? Mm. You're a Bible guy. Bible's your profession. It's like your craft to <laughs> interpret and to help people. But then there's like this living person, that this tr- oh, this Trinity man. of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who love Preston and meet with you, and you respond to him. What is that? How does that like play out?
1: And, and that's a great question, and and I stopped. Trying to give right answers a long time ago, so I, I just err on the side of honesty. That that was a tough one, man. I, I I've gone through seasons. I've gone through seasons where reading the Bible was like a intimate encounter with a personal deity. You can almost feel, almost feel like a physical embrace and I've gone through seasons where I'm reading the Bible and I might as well be reading the Quran or something, you know, like I'm, I'm just reading a, a, a very inter- it's always been interesting, a very interesting, but historical document. that doesn't feel alive in, in the kind of sense that we're talking about, you know?
0: I appreciate the honesty. That's
1: yeah, cool. no, really. And I, I, you know, I, I, um... and it's not so, so the precept, the, the stereotype is that, well, when you study Bible academically, It's all going to be that bad stuff, the dry stuff, the distant stuff. God's not going to be, you know, it hasn't been that for me. Sometimes my most vibrant times are when I'm digging into a deep, deep scholarly, you know, thing. I took a class on Psalms in seminary. It was at like 5 a.m., some crazy thing. We spent the whole semester working through every inch of the Hebrew of like five Psalms over four months. That was deep. We were looking at extensive technical Hebrew grammar And I just remembered that was some of the most worshipful Bible study I've ever encountered because it was just, it just felt so like, felt God just speaking to me in these details, you know, in really powerful ways. And there's been other times when I'll read devotional literature and it just feels so like, am I even a Christian? This stuff doesn't affect, it just, you know, it doesn't do anything for me, you know? So it's not the academic versus non-academic for me, um, but yeah, I, I don't know what the I don't I don't um I, I I guess I've learned to be okay with that too. I, I think emotional, if you can put it in those terms, highs and lows are part of the natural journey of the Christian life. And mm-hmm. while the lows may suck, I don't think we need to necessarily freak out like something's completely mm-hmm. off. Like any saint in the Bible had highs and lows. David had tons of highs and lows. Um Moses did, Elijah did, some of the greatest saints in the world, some missionaries, you know, struggle with the major depression and God feeling distant. David said all the time, yep. God, where are you? Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? You know, yep. so I, I don't, I don't, I'm okay. I'm okay, but it, I don't know. I'm okay, but I also don't want to be okay with being okay with that. And I don't know how to slice that out. Um, hmm. Yeah, for, for me, and this is just, just me, just me. Please do not follow this or try to do this if this isn't you. The I, I am just my personality is very analytical, um, to my wife's chagrin sometimes. <laughs> you know, like it's just just give me the facts. Just don't give me but just give me you know. Um, I'm very rational, very analytical, and for me, that actually keeps my faith going. Hmm. I don't know if that's making sense. Like some people, they need. Yeah, to, it does. If they don't feel God emotionally, they think they start doubting their faith. Like, is God here? Whatever. I I don't I don't have often those kind of experiences, especially anymore. I mean, a little more, a little bit more early on, but I'm just personality wise, I just not. I don't know. God didn't wire me that way. Um, and so for me, the, the aliveness, the realness of God does live in rational, analytical reflection on who God is based in Scripture. sounds. Yeah, and some people yeah. who are opposite, they're probably thinking, I don't think you're a Christian, Preston. Like, how can you, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. I've become okay with that. Like, I don't... Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that sometimes produces emotional... My emotional responses sometimes when I get really excited about the faith, it's usually because of some prior rational theological reflection you know Um, at the the exiles conference bro when you're leading worship it's i feel like i worship god fully um for three days of the year it's at exiles (laughs) i'm serious and that's not i I, I, it's neither here nor there i i I know i have a heart there's another i I really struggle with contemporary christian worship and and traditional church services and so on and and i just think because Exiles is very intellectually honest and stimulating and multi ethnic and, 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 and asks hard questions, and, and it's, it's, it's all, it's just, it kind of, I mean, because I created it, it kind of reflects kind of who I am. So right. I feel like it's just, I feel like this feels like the kind of Christianity. And so my response is very much like, oh, this. Just gratitude. Yeah. yeah. Plus, you're an amazing worship leader, bro you're very kind, and
0: uh, this last question is it, and you can answer it however you want. What are you nervous about? What are you excited about? What do you have a challenging thought about or just gratitude about when it comes to the church and its relationship with Scripture today? Like, when you look out into the next five, ten years, or you look at the church today, what do you—what mm. bubbles up, and what would you say to the church that's listening, to Park Hill and even beyond?
1: Man, that's a great question, bro. I, um, the thought that immediately came to mind is I'm excited that the church, especially younger generations, let's just say millennials, Gen Xers are becoming more and more okay with honesty, asking questions, not having everything ironed out, wrestling with doubt. Um, exploring different viewpoints and not demonizing people who land on different positions. I feel like there's a lot more, for instance, my view on annihilation of hell. When I talk to anybody under 40, they're kind of like, oh, well, tell me more about that. That's interesting. You know, when I talk to boomers, they're like, I thought you are a Christian. You know, it's like, they kind of black and white. And that's, that's a stereotype, okay? Sorry, boomers. I saw all of you, I know some amazing boomers who are just really, I think, nuanced and whatever. But um, I, I just, yeah, I get excited that I think the church seems to be moving towards a little more honesty, um, and yet also that that is still kind of thwarted to come full circle to this kind of polarization of not just political, but I mean anything social media. Just our whole culture today is it, it feeds it feeds on polarization, either or, in or out, good evil, left right. You know, are you for this? Are you anti that? You know, if you're, if, yeah if you're not waving a ukraine flag you're pro-putin or whatever you know it's like there's there's, everything's so binary it's just um and that 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 one makes me i think that i don't i see that getting worse not better do do you have any thoughts on that um
0: um not off the top of my head i'm i'm just i have a very active imagination when i listen to others speak and i picture what you're saying Mm -hmm. i'm picturing someone waving a ukrainian flag and then being seen as anti-all russians or someone right someone waving a whatever and being seen as something that is anti that they're not saying. And, and I just feel grief uh, at, at that. And I just, but I also feel excitement when I talk like you said, when I talk to my sons, the theological conversations around the Wickham table are like the school of discipleship that, that I just feel honored to be a part of in my home. And they, they ask questions sometimes goes late into the night and, um, uh, yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited. The way the way my 15 year old Hendrik is able to hold tension, I just I just learned that three his three best friends for the last three years are are gay guys. I didn't even know that, and and I'm like, so that's why you asked that question about same sex marriage a year ago. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And he's just very quiet and amazing and and uh and he's just seeking to follow jesus he understands uh historic marriage and he has questions and yet he's such a great friend to his friends and he's just Mm. there's all this there's all the, the world they grew up in is so different than the world i grew up in and they're navigating at least my kids anecdotally are navigating it well and i know that's not everyone's story i know there's parents listening to this even in our church who who are going through just gut-wrenching tensions in their families. And everything you just said, Preston, is, you know, that tension is what they're living through. And their dinner table is not this school of theology, you know. Their dinner table is like, man, someone's missing from this table. Mm. Um, and I'm just like, man, I I pray that that the Prince of Peace has his way more and more and more as the church becomes a place where no question off limits, honest doubt is welcome. Mm-hmm. And we differentiate honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Honest doubt really looks for answers, like like hunger yeah. lo- looks for food, where dishonest doubt really is looking for exits, not answers. <laughs> that's a good and distinction. That's really good. That's from, that's from Dominic Doan. He wrote oh, that, yeah. Yeah. that book on doubt. Honest doubt looks for answers, where dishonest doubt looks for exits. And I just, even when there's people in our church looking for exits, mm-hmm. There's hurt there there's a story there there's yeah. like their family didn't let them yeah. doubt honestly or or tell the tell the story of their struggles so I just pray for uh, a more fruit of the spirit filled church uh, that flows from a clear gospel pronounce- announcement uh, the, the gospel announcement on Sunday would actually be just the truth about the life of the church Monday through Saturday um, yeah, that's. It's I was not expecting cool. you to kick it back to me. I just, I just feel all like the, the pastoral web of relationships, <laughs> and yeah. how they'll just kind of receive all this. And I just, I'm just, I'm excited, and grieving both at the same time. It's was kind of answer. next
1: generation questions, you know, like what's the future of the church? What's it gonna look like five, ten years? What's Gen Z like? Young millennials? I think because we live at one of the most unique transitions and social history, um, that it's almost hard, uniquely hard, to even predict that. Uh, and I say, you know, unique social transitions. I mean, I, we haven't gone through this since probably the printing press, you know. It's almost like somebody in, you know, printing press is invented in 1450, you know, asking somebody in 1460, like, what's the church going to look like in 50 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, we're just, we're, we're in the eye of the storm of some cataclysmic, social upheaval in the wake of the mm-hmm. internet and, and, you know, globalization and empires coming and going. I, it's, we're, we're, we're going to look back on our time right now and we're, this is, we're going to be in the history, and we're not, but I mean, <laughs> the history books are going to write about this time period. Like, Oh, wow. You lived during that kind of like people, you know, hear somebody that like will through like world war two, like, Oh my God, what was it like? Like Hitler was literally alive when you were, yeah. what was that like? And the Nazis, are they going to take over the world? Like, I don't know what that feeling of, of feeling like, the country I live in might be taken over by an actual dictator. Like, that's crazy, yeah. you know? Like, I think we're going to look back on this time period saying, what was it like when, you know, AI was off and running and Neuralink is fixing limbs or whatever? And you, the only you, phone you, had... Social a, the media only destroying only phones, people.
0: <laughs> yeah, the only phones had a wire and there was no internet. It's
1: crazy. Not that long ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, like in high school, like freshman I I know. Me. I
1: spent so, most half of my life gosh. without a smartphone. That's crazy. More than half my life. Way more than half my life. Yeah.
0: So may Jesus have his way in the church. And Preston, I can't thank you enough for participating in the conversation at Park Hill in this way. Thank
1: you. Um, and gosh, yeah, just thank you. Well, I truly love you guys, Park Hill listening. I, I talk about, you guys probably don't know this, but I talk about Park Hill all the time. Uh, absolutely love, love, love what God's doing through you guys. I truly mean that. That's not like I don't that to every podcaster that has me on to talk about their church. So, um, yeah, keep it up. You guys are doing unique stuff, and you probably don't even realize it.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. And so, for those of you that are listening, I'm going to give a word to Preston real quick. I'm going to stop this recording, and you have to stay on so that it keeps uploading on your end so yes. we get the full thing. All right. So, uh, grace and peace, Park Hill Church. Have an amazing week, and look out for more interviews, and I'll see you on Sunday. God bless.